0: We're going to look at verses 14 through 18, um, specifically just kind of staying within verse 14. But I want us to see a little bit of our context and see some of the motivations for these things. Um, this is one of those sermons that I was not excited about um, for the reason of these are ones that kind of hit you in the head a little bit. Um, if you're already looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, um, these are one of the things that's very convicting. and It's one that causes a lot of... Um, reflection and and different things kind of in the life of the person who is even going to be studying this out and trying to understand it Um, but philippians chapter 2 verses 14 through 18 is going to be our text in our previous verses we saw the exhortation from paul to work out your salvation and i'm going to make the point again so that we make sure we're clear on it this is not to work towards your salvation or to work for your salvation in the sense that paul is saying hey Work so hard to produce salvation in your life, you, that it is going to be saved by works. We understand all of Scripture testifies to salvation by grace through faith and that it is not of works. So Paul is encouraging them to work out your salvation, which is to show these things out, to actually play out and to show out the inner reality. This is, again, in the understanding of a spiritual integrity. All of the places in our lives, in every circumstance, we want people to live and to act in a way that reflects their beliefs, right? A person claims to be one way, we want them to act that way. Um, We always say we want someone to to have integrity and to live a life that is reflective of what it is that they are actually believing. And here Paul is encouraging them to do the same thing. You have been saved, therefore work out your salvation, show forth these different things in the way in which you live. And he did so by giving them an example previously in the person of Christ, in verses 5 through 8. But let's take a look here, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. He says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, That I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we praise you for being so good, being so Gracious in the way that you deal with us, we we praise you and we are rejoicing and thankful that you have given us your word, that you did not stay silent, but that you have revealed yourself not only through creation, but through the giving of your word. And as we open it this morning, I pray that we would understand and that we would truly appreciate and adore the fact that we are reading the very words that you have spoken. God, we thank you. We ask that you would be glorified in all that we do here this morning and throughout the rest of our time today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, this morning we're going to focus pretty quickly and and simply here uh, exclusively on verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Um, Again, this is one of those texts that I did not Uh, truly enjoy, to have to study, to have to consider, to have to reflect upon. And ironically, and I'm sure some of you understand this, I found myself complaining a little bit about what it is that I had to consider. Um, You read a verse, James 5 also talks about this. We see constant biblical commands and examples to avoid complaining. Um, I don't think I need to exactly take a poll among everybody here this morning, but I'm going to safely say that all of us have complained at one point in our life. At least one time, I think that's safe to say. I'm sure we've only complained once, maybe three times max each. Um, But complaining is a constant and a universal struggle among men. Uh, We see this all the way back to the very beginning. Who was the first complainer? Adam. The first man ever created. Right, fall in the garden, God comes and talks to him, and he says, no, no, the woman that you gave me, God, did this. He's already complaining, he's already blaming God, and essentially saying, well, if you hadn't given me this woman, then this would have never happened. Adam went to sleep, he wasn't married, he woke up, he was married. He didn't choose her, and he's saying, God, the woman that you gave to me is the one who did these things. The very first man, we already find him, Complaining. Then we find the same thing with Cain. We see Moses complaining that the Lord didn't deliver them quickly enough. Imagine all that Moses had endured. We look in Exodus chapter 5. We see the stories there, these great stories that so many people already know and understand. And even Moses himself, after seeing all that God has done, delivering them out of Egypt, he complains, God, you didn't do it quickly enough. And we look at that and we say, Moses, how unthankful... Are you How lacking in gratitude and thanks are you because God has done these mighty things in your life specifically and among his people and you are still complaining about this because he didn't do it on your time. And it's very easy to look at that and to say Moses was a fool and how terrible Moses was in complaining about this. But how many times in our lives have we already up to as many years as each one of us has already lived complained because God just didn't do it quickly enough? Or even now, we are still complaining because, God, I keep asking you for this, and you haven't done it yet, so now I'm complaining, now I'm grumbling, now I'm murmuring because our time is the most important thing to us. God, I'm happy that you did it, but you could have done that two years ago. Well, God, I really wanted this job, and I'm thankful that you gave me this promotion that I've been wanting, but you know what? A couple years ago, this would have been a lot better. We complain, and we grumble, and we murmur. About these things. Israel complained about the water. Again, they've been delivered out of Egypt. They're complaining about the water, saying, hey, this isn't really the best water we've had. It doesn't really taste good. This is three days after God had already parted the Red Sea, delivering them out of the hands of the Egyptians away from Pharaoh. Three days. Imagine, you have just seen something seemingly miraculous. The Red Sea has just been parted. You're finally delivered out of bondage and slavery, and all that you had just left. And it only takes you three days to start complaining about things like,
1: eh, water doesn't
0: taste as good. So then, what does God do? He makes the water sweet. Then later, short time later, they start complaining about the lack of food that they have. Grumbling and murmuring, complaining, whichever word it is that best suits whatever you think you uh, need to remember it by, is something that has existed from the very beginning and continues to exist in each and every one of our lives. Complaining, complaining, complaining. God has done all of these incredible things for the people of Israel, and none of it was important enough to even last them a couple of days. I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 13. We're going to look... And Just a few verses here in Numbers 13 uh, to close, and then a few f- the first verses in chapter 14. And I want us to look again. We can almost open up our Bibles, flop it open, and wherever we land, we're going to find some sort of objection, some sort of complaint, some sort of thing. Wherever a person is involved, there's going to be some kind of a complaining. If you're familiar with Numbers 13, okay, spies are sent out to go and to see this land. They're going out, they're looking around, saying, okay, let's see what this is. God's promised us this. We're going to go check it out. Numbers chapter 13, verse 30, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. We get the reports of Caleb and Joshua. They come back and say, hey, we can do this. This is good. Things are going to be fine. Just like God said, this is encouraging. And then in verses 31 through 33, we see a very negative Report, But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. This is the land that God had told them that this is going to be yours. They go, they see it, Caleb and Joshua, they come back, and they look and they say, hey, this is cool, this is going to be fine, it's good. Everyone else, nope, not going there. These people are huge. That's a good Chilson paraphrase there if you want to make notations there. Consider all of this. They, they're reflecting upon the stature of the people that they see, completely neglecting the fact that God himself is the one that said, no, no, this is for you. This is yours. I'm giving this to you. Forget about the stature of the people. They come back. They have this story about there's giants, and we looked like grasshoppers, and that's how we look to them. And then it continues on, and notice the response here in verses 1 through 4. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us unto this land, to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be at prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into egypt the spies they come back they see well that had happened they're complaining about everything saying those people are too big the the land this you know all these excuses they're complaining about everything that they had been given and notice what happens the complaint of some of these men and now who begins complaining who begins crying out the whole congregation it is not just isolated to these specific men now it becomes Everybody that is there, the whole congregation, so much so that these people who had been delivered out of Egypt, delivered out of bondage, out of slavery, the thing they had cried for for so long, they are now saying, why did God even bring us here? Wouldn't it have been better for us to die and just to be in Egypt? They're going back and saying, well, were there not enough grace for us to be buried there that we had to now be buried out here in the wilderness? They're simply complaining about this. And I want us to understand that complaining is wildly contagious, isn't it? We work with people that complain all the time. We have complaining within our family. We complain, and then we start to see it in our kids. Okay, As a parent, this is something, again, that is one of those hits in the head that you start to re- your kids mirror you, which is one of the most terrifying thoughts. When your kid says something and you say, Benji, are we supposed to talk like that? And you realize, oh, I know where he learned it. He didn't just make this up on his own. Complaining is wildly infectious and contagious. It did not stay isolated to these simple men. They came back, they give the report, and now everyone is questioning, then why did God even bring us out here? Completely failing to realize that the same God that brought you out here is the one who actually brought you out here, out of Egypt, out of sin, out of slavery, all of these different things that he is bringing you out of, out of the slavery, out of the bondage. He has brought you out of all of this, and you're complaining about all of these little details. They're complaining that the water wasn't good enough, he made it sweet. They're complaining the food wasn't good enough, because initially it was, well, we don't have any food. God brings manna from the sky. Well, now that doesn't taste good. At least in slavery, we had better food. At least we were by the pots of meat, and we were by everything there. Imagine seeing all that they had seen. Imagine experiencing all they had experienced and complaining because the water and the food God provided just wasn't sweet enough, just wasn't good enough. Imagine you've been starving. You've had no food for two weeks. Someone comes up to you, gives you a burger, and you say, "Ah, it's a little bit undercooked from what I prefer. How insulting would that be to the person who comes up to you to give that to you? None of us would actually do that to the person. We would at least fake interest in it. But we grumble, we complain, we murmur about so many different things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses nine through 10, Paul is writing to them again, a church in Corinth who was not a perfect example of many different things. But notice what he writes to them in chapter 10. verses nine through 10, he says, "Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed." of serpents, neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. He is hearkening back all the way to these old Testament stories of God destroying those who were complaining. Complaining seems very small, doesn't it? It seems like such a small thing. It seems very insignificant. It seems like, oh, it's just kind of my mood, as if it's not actually something that would be sinful, that God would absolutely despise. But there are stories. We see Korah's rebellion. We see this destruction here of serpents that he's alluding back to. We see all that happened with with Israel. Why were they wandering in the wilderness for so long? They're complaining. They're murmuring. They're grumbling. God absolutely despises complaining. Now stop for a second and think, have you complained today? I complained knowing this is what the text was this morning on the drive here because I was behind someone incredibly slow. I complained about it. So here in our text uh, in Philippians, Paul is writing, he said all that he's already said and he tells them, to do all things without murmurings and disputings and everything that you are to do, do so without grumbling, without complaining, without murmuring. This is the attitude, this is the way that we are supposed to be working out our salvation that he had just talked about in the previous two verses, to do these things without complaining. We've talked numerous times in the past couple months about suffering, When suffering comes, do we complain or do we rejoice in those times of suffering? Knowing the purpose behind the suffering. First instinct is something bad happens, some suffering comes, my first instinct is to complain. Why is this happening to me? Doesn't God know I have all these other things going on? I don't have time to deal with this. We start complaining and murmuring and going on all of these other things. In college, it was... uh, either sophomore or junior year, I get all these years mixed up, one of the classes that Brittany and I had to take, it was a required class for everybody at the school, it was called Principles and Practices of Prayer. Okay, It wasn't a Baptist school, but they got the alliterations perfect. They did a great job, three Ps, Principles and Practices and Prayer. The biggest thing that he said for during this class, it was an eight-week course, the main goal that he said was obviously prayer and understanding Um he said, while you are in this class, I want you for the next eight weeks to not complain. To actively avoid complaining. And I thought, wow, okay, that sounds interesting. It's not super academic. Let's see how this goes. And he said, when you do complain, I want you to write it down. I want you to see how many times a day you actually complain. In an active pursuit of not complaining, let's see how it is that we're going to do. And this was the same thing. Every class, every year that he had. Now, some of you know my study habits in college. I didn't really write stuff down real well. Um, But when you are actively seeking to see how often you complain, you find it everywhere. You leave the class, and I'm complaining. This is a stupid assignment. Right? Like, these are the... I'm sure you guys are absolutely shocked that I would think that, right? Right? Complaining, you're you're asked, look, pay attention to your complaining. See how many times that you do it. Actively seek to avoid complaining. Do these things without complaining, and you realize it is just such a natural part of you that you don't even realize when you do it. Right now, if someone were to give you a list of complaints that maybe you've had today or just yesterday, two days ago, however long the list is, we would be absolutely shocked with how many times we either complain, we murmur, we grumble. It's become such a natural habit that it is, it's the same as breathing for so many people. We don't have to tell ourselves to complain. That's just what we do. We don't have to tell ourselves to breathe. We just naturally do it. But not just complaining. He then adds this one. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. This is from the word dialogismos, which is questioning, doubting, or disputing the truth of a matter. This is essentially what every lawyer seeks out to do, to dispute things, to argue, to hold conversations, to say as if you would know better. This is when a situation comes our way and we say, God, why is it that you're doing this? Don't you understand that this needs to happen? God, couldn't you have done this a different way Um, because I you know, a man, I know better than you, oh God, as to how things need to happen. Don't complain, and don't question, or doubt, or argue with God, because at the end of the day, any bit of arguing against God, any complaining, are all symptoms of a lack of trust. Israel complained, well God, why is it like this? This isn't good enough. They didn't trust that God would provide. They're complaining about the water because they didn't believe God would provide. They're complaining about the food and all of these things because they did not believe, they did not trust that God would provide. And when we do complain about what God is doing, when we do argue against what God is doing, we are doing so against his providence. We say, God, I know that you know all things. I know that you're all powerful. I know, I know, I know but I think I know something, too. I think I know a better way. Just imagine how, how proud we must look to God when we do that, of saying, God, I know you've done this a long time. I know that you know, you're know, you eternal. I know all of these things. I know that you've never had to learn anything, and I'm you know, all of 16 or 18 or even 600. It doesn't matter. We know nothing compared to God. And when we argue against him, we are arguing against his providence, and his plan. Complaining about what God is doing, complaining about circumstances in our life is the equivalent of sitting in your bedroom with your brother or your sister and complaining about mom and dad. Right? I know you guys didn't do it, so I'll just talk about myself then. Okay? When I would sit in the room with my brothers and we would complain about mom or dad, they do this, you know, it's so it's dumb that dad makes us do this, blah, 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 and you continue on. And of course, if one complains, well, now it's an open door, right? Everyone's willing to complain now. Because when someone complains, it's not often that the other person in the room just says, hey, stop, we're not doing that. It tends to go, yeah, okay, I want to complain too. I got a couple of things I want to say. So you're sitting there in the room, you're complaining with somebody else. I'm complaining about my dad saying, yeah, dad, it's so dumb that he makes us do this. And, you know, we had to shovel the driveway. We have to do all these different chores because we're off school today. This is ridiculous. ridiculous. And he's standing there in the doorway hearing me talk about him the whole time. That's what happens. That's what it looks like when we are complaining about our circumstance, about our life, about a situation, complaining about God. He hears everything. It's not as if God is absent just because we're complaining and God is like, well, no, now I'll stop listening or hearing anything. He hears everything. He sees everything from the very beginning all the way to the very end we are complaining and arguing against the very providence of God, that same providence which has brought many of us to even saving faith. And yet we are going to complain and say, God, I know a better way. Why is this happening? And again, I want to draw back to verses 5 through 8 to look at this example of Christ. If, if doing all things without murmurings, without disputing, without arguing against all of these different situations, we see an incredible example of, and verses 5 through 8 talking about Christ let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation this is humbling himself so humble yourself without grumbling taking upon the form of a servant do that without grumbling and complaining and murmuring Being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself. Again, do so without grumbling, becoming obedient. Do that without complaining, without murmuring, without grumbling. Obedient even unto death. How many of us, if this were to be the case today, would be obedient even unto death without complaining and grumbling about our circumstance? Again, this is a man who is writing who absolutely had great reason in our perspective to complain, to grumble, to throw a fit and to say god why is it that you are doing all of these things. Remember even in chapter 1 he's trying to figure out well, do i really would i rather desire to stay here or would i desire to be in heaven but it's better for me that i should stay. Paul understood persecution, he understood tribulation, he understood struggle and awful circumstances. But even so, he's not just drawing on his own experience. He's using the picture of Christ. And we see in Isaiah 53, again, we talk about humbling yourself, about being obedient even unto death, doing so without complaint, without grumbling, without dispute, without argument. Isaiah 53, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as the sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. There's no grumbling. There was not complaining. There wasn't even argument or dispute as Christ is being obedient even unto death, the very death on the cross. He did not murmur. He was not grumbling and groaning and complaining. God, why was this have to be your plan? This is ridiculous. Do it this other way because I think this is a different way that we should do it. It should be better this way. He was obedient because he was sent by the Father to do all that the Father willed. So how hard is this actually to do? How hard is it then? Again, drawing back to the class that I had. Hey, guys, for the next eight weeks, try not to complain. Oh, thanks. You know. See how hard this is. It, it was incredibly hard. I think you guys, again, I told you the assignment. You can see your faces. You guys understand. Powerfully difficult. Insanely difficult to avoid complaining, especially if you have to go to work. It's, just, it's hard. We struggle so much on day-to-day things. But why is it and how hard is it to stop complaining? Look at James chapter 3, familiar passages, verses 1 and 2. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. He's talking all about the tongue in these passages. The tongue is the most difficult member of our body to control. No, If you are able to control it, then you are a perfect man. And even Paul himself had said, hey, I am not perfect, I have not even attained this. Does anyone here bold enough to say that they perfectly control their tongue in all places, at all times? It is insanely difficult to control your tongue. It's the toughest thing to do, and it is the last thing to go. Complaining. It is far more difficult to stop complaining than it would be so many of these other sins that we can constantly focus on. It is far more difficult to stop complaining, than it would be to stop committing adultery, to stop stealing, to stop killing people, which hopefully none of those are repetitive things. Far greater is the difficulty to control your tongue because it is the one thing we cannot control. Again, it is this raging fire that we cannot control. And if we're struggling with understanding that, ask someone that lives with you. Hey, do I control my tongue? If any man doesn't offend at all in word, then he is a perfect man. There's no perfect man seated here. There's no perfect man in Glenwood Springs, in Colorado, in the United States, in all of the world. But Paul did give the perfect man as the example in verses 5-8 through in Philippians 2. Again, we see this perfect example of Christ in all of these things in Isaiah 53, as it says, He did not open his mouth. He did not complain. He did not grumble. Why? Because he was a perfect man, and the very Son of God, who is God himself. The Thoughts here in verse 14 are incredibly clear. It doesn't take seminary, it doesn't take too many different uh, times reading through here to just read, do all things without murmurings and disputings. So don't complain. It's about 25 minutes of me saying, stop complaining. This disputing, these are the thoughts which are arguing, disputing against God. We see biblical examples of where they, people would criticize, they indict, or they judge God. They, we hear a biblical truth, and we see it clearly outlined in Scripture, and we say, well, God, how could you do that? How is God good if he does this? And I want us to look just in closing at Romans chapter 9, verses 18 through 21. We see this example in so many of Paul's different writings, where he's he's laying out those things which are true, and he offers an objector there, the person who would argue against what it is that Paul is saying, and offering the refute. In Romans 9, 18-21, this understanding that God is going to do all that he wills, says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, again, so... Building the background here, the sovereignty of God, he is going to do, he is going to have mercy on those whom he will have mercy and whom he will harden. If he has laid this out and then offers this objector Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but O man, and notice what he says here in verse 20 the person who's arguing against why God is able to do what God sovereignly desires to do, this is what he says. Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The simple objector here is clear of, God, I I don't like what it is that we are saying. I don't like what it is that Paul is writing. So a person may say, well, how is he going to still do this? Why would he still find fault in a man? And the simple response is, who are you to reply against God? Does he not have the power, the right, whatever words we want to use for it, is he not able to do all that he wills? You are made by God. How many of you, show of hands, we'll get, get this in. How many of you guys ever did any kind of like pottery class in school? Okay. I avoided it because I knew I'd be terrible at it. Okay, Some of you did it. Uh, When you're at the potter's wheel, you're forming whatever it is that you wanted to make, right? Or what the teacher told you to make, okay? You had to create it. You're making a cup. Did it yell at you and say, no, I want to be a bowl? Did it say, no, I want to be this awesome sculpture? Or did it just do what you wanted it to do? Because you were in charge, right? You were the one forming it. You were the one making it. It became what you desired in your best efforts for it to be. It did not have an argument. It did not get to criticize you and say, "No, I'm supposed to be a bowl, and you've made me into a coffee mug. I don't want to be a coffee mug. I get to be a bowl." It doesn't. It doesn't work this way. Yet God formed each and every person that has ever lived, and has made them the way that He saw fit, the way that He had desired to do so. The constant sense of complaining that so many people have is, "God, I just don't like what you did. I don't." I don't like certain things. Why is it that I had to wait so long for this? Again, just like Moses. God, I know you delivered us out of Egypt, but I wish you would have done it sooner. Why didn't you do it sooner? Constantly complaining. No thankfulness. No gratitude in so many places. And as we see clearly, and Paul does this in all of his letters, offers a rebuke to the objector who complains about what God is doing and that God is doing as he pleases. Why? Because we want to be in control of everything. We think that we are the potter in our own lives. We think we get to form our life and guide and direct each and every single step. We control, and we talked about this in the Sunday school, we control very little. We we are, and we're bad at the things we even do control. We can mess those up. You know, I ask my kids all the time, can you just, you know, I'll ask Benji, hey, Benji, can you go grab me this basket? Okay, runs off. Doesn't bring me a basket, brings me a toy. Why? Because he's a kid, right? You give him one little thing to control, he struggles with it. How many things God has given to us, the incredible great things that he has done, and yet we still find fault with God and complain and say, God, it is not enough. Yes, I know that you have eternally saved me, from sin and death, that you have conquered all of these things, that you sent your son to die, atoning for my sins. I I understand all of that, but you know what? I'm really not happy with the person that I work with, so I need to complain about this day in and day out. This is practically how many of us conduct our lives. It's a universal thing. We complain, always losing sight of the thanks and the gratitude that we have. You don't like your job? Praise God you have a job. Your kids. We can complain about kids. I know I've done it. Okay, Brittany and I talk all the time. Man, Maddie is kind of a brat sometimes, right? Your kids act up because they're three, right? That's what a three-year-old does. I know Jamie. You can't imagine her being a brat. It's just because she loves you. Okay. Your your kids are at home. They're unruly. They they can be disrespectful. They could be whatever it is that's going on, and you can complain and complain and complain. But guess what? Praise God, you have kids to complain about. In every single situation that we can look at, we can find the immense thanks and gratitude for those things. And I, I don't like leaving it like this, so I want to read verse 15 because I want us to see the motivation for these things. I want us to see why it is that we are to do as this is. This is not just a simple uh, self-encouragement. This is not just for some self-esteem. This is not just some random imperative or command of just, hey, just do this because I said so. But he explains it now in verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So why is it important for Christians to work out their salvation, to actually show forth those inner realities of a redeemed person? Because we're lights in the world among a crooked and perverse nation Israel was supposed to be a light for all the world to see and they failed so many different ways we are to let our light shine before men so they may glorify our father in heaven we have the old children's song of this little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine right and hiding it under a bushel a light by definition um, isn't really a light if it's covered right Think you guys understand that. But how often is the light that Christians are supposed to be exuding, supposed to be giving off, how, how much do we just hide it under a bushel? We just call it a church building. It doesn't extend past here where we keep our light and we say, yes, look how brightly we're shining in this room. Look how brightly we shine on a Sunday morning. We leave the doors. Whoop, got to cover that light up. I don't want people to you know, criticize me or to think, oh, that's some weird Christian, whatever the case may be. Stand out. A Christian is going to stand out in all of these different things. In, in the previous chapter, we saw on chapter 1, the way that a Christian is going to act is the sign of their destruction to people. Israel was supposed to be not just a light for the glory of God, but also to show his judgment and his righteousness and his wrath upon all sin. So we're going to look at 15 through 18 a little bit more um, next week, but I want us to understand the motivation for why it is that we aren't to complain. This morning was very, very simple. It was very clear, very easy. Do all things without complaining. So I'm going to give homework. I don't usually do this. But some of you guys like lists and you want something to do, right? I'm not that person, but Brittany is, so it's okay. I get it. Okay. Try to keep track today, rest of the week, how much do you complain. When you complain, mark it down. Just even for a few hours, see how long it goes. We're all going to drive home. We're all going to walk home. We're going to go somewhere. Any different situation can bring about some sort of complaining. Okay, again, just like me this morning, I'm complaining because there's a slow driver ahead of me. Guess what? Thank God I have a car that works. Wasn't always the case, right? Okay, I think a lot of us have been there too. Consider how much we complain and consider... Why am I complaining when God has done infinitely more than I could have ever done myself, more than I could have ever asked for? He has been so good and so gracious and so merciful in all things. Why do I find fault in God? Why do I think I can complain or argue against what it is that he is doing? He is God. He is the potter. And I am the creature. I am the man. And I am to honor him and glorify him in all things. And understanding, God, I do not know what it is exactly that you are doing But I know it is to glorify yourself, and I will trust and have faith in you because of that. That's the whole basis for faith. It's not a perfect understanding of all the mechanics of how God is going to do what he's going to do. But we have his promises, and we trust him in that. One of the greatest things God has ever done was giving his son to atone for our sins on the cross. There were people at that time that were complaining the disciples were complaining, Jesus, why do you have to die? We don't want it to be this way. Complaining, grumbling, murmuring that, you were, that Jesus, their teacher, was going to die. Without that, there would have been no salvation for any man, even them. They're complaining and grumbling at the death of their master. Many of us understand it, but how great of an accomplishment was that to eternally secure redemption? What a beautiful thing that that is. Let's pray. God, this morning I confess that complaining is a an active part of the way in which live day to day and understand that each time that there is complaining and, and grumbling, it shows a incredible lack of faith and and trust in you for all things, that oftentimes we can excuse our own grumbling, our own complaints, and try to justify it because of so many different situations. We can argue all day against it, but we see so clearly in so many places that you absolutely hate complaining, you hate grumbling, you hate murmuring. And every time we look back at Israel, we see them constantly complaining, and it brings us to complain about Israel, but understanding that when we complain, we are we are saying that we don't have enough faith, we don't, that we don't trust you enough. God, I pray that for each and every one of us here that, that may struggle with complaining, as I'm sure many, if not all of us do, that you would bring about a spirit of thankfulness in this place, that, that as we even see that a lack of complaining, a lack of, murmuring and arguing is something that simply shows forth light to the world. That there is something that is distinct and distinguishing about a person who does not complain. God, though it is something that seems small, we we see here this morning in another text that it is something that you take very seriously, that it is a very large symptom. God, I pray that you would give us the strength and allowing us to attempt to control our tongues, that by your Spirit you would give us the power to speak those things which are good, which are true, that we would speak those things which honor you. And as we reflect today and throughout this week on a spirit of complaining about an attitude of constant complaint, constant rebuttal, constant criticism or indictment against what is going on in the world and asking where you are and why you allow these things, I pray that we would simply know that you are working all things for the good of those who love you and that you are doing all things to glorify yourself with the highest ends and the highest means in your perfect wisdom. God, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done, all that you will continue to do, fulfilling all of your promises for all of eternity. God, we rest and we greatly praise you for the hope that we have, the confidence that we have. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.